As I was reflecting on what to speak to the men about, I thought how we need to be charged to pursue godly character. Character is not something which is external to us and which we simply put on like we would put on an overcoat. It is not something we have today and lose tomorrow, though it's very much subject to change. It's not something present in some men and absent in others. Character is what we are as men. We can be men of evil character, and boy, there's plenty of that in the world, isn't there? Or we can be men of righteous character. We can be men of strong character or of weak character. We can be men whose character is growing, maturing, as indeed it should be. Or we can be men whose character is digressing and mutating towards degeneracy. But all of us, without exception, have character. It is what we are. And in a sense, what we are becoming. As to godly character, I think it's fair to say that the Bible depicts all of us as men devoid of godly character. By that I mean this was our starting point in our initiation to this world. We were not born righteous and God-fearing. We were born wicked and God-hating. And as the years progressed, time made no improvement on our character. Instead, we became set in our ways, and we were convinced that religion and matters of faith were for weak-willed men, sissies, women, and children. We took our image of the male from the world, and in particular, from those parts of society which depicted men as strong in will, strong in body, immovable in personality, maybe even fighters and brawlers, masters of their own destiny, and iron-fisted rulers in their homes. Through my years in the ministry, I've seen this. Our wives and our children feared us, but they didn't respect us. Perhaps there was even very little love in our homes. There may have been a lot of shouting, a lot of uh, laying down the law and making uh, others toe the line. But there was a little warmth and a little compassion. That's some, I some ideas that men have of leadership. We thought this was being a man. Some may still think that way. In reality, however, being male has nothing to do with these stereotypes at all. The real men of the world are those who have come out of the folly of concluding there is no God, Psalm 14, verse 1. And they have discovered that maleness has to do with being created in the image of God and living up to that godliness which is found in the example of Christ. Isn't that interesting? That if God made us in his image, he's made us to be holy like Christ. Many men of the Bible depict this change, and it is a change that occurs. Abraham was certainly a godly man, but he was one who also compromised his wife on two separate occasions. So godly, but also a sinner. And he brought shame on her as a result. David, we are told in the scripture, was a man after God's own heart. But as to his own family, he was a pretty lousy father. All of his sons, with the exception of Solomon, turned out wicked. Now what about Solomon? Well, he began well. But soon he was consumed by his lust for women, which led him into all kinds of idolatry. 
Instead of him converting them to Jehovah and the worship of the only God there is, they converted him to their little pagan deities and he followed them. If you read the scriptures, you'll see that he even built worship centers for his wives and their false gods on the various hills and countryside around Jerusalem. Eli the priest served the Lord faithfully, but his sons turned out to be fornicators and thieves with regard to God's own offerings. So you see this admixture of godly character and still sin in their lives, and that's where we're at. That's us today, even in the church. It's hard to find a man in the Bible whose character was godly from start to finish, though not perfect. We're not talking sinless here. But he seemed to improve in time. Not slipping back in, backwards in his relationship to God, but moving forward for the good of himself, for the good of those who counted on his leadership. And I believe that Nehemiah was such a man. So what I want to do in our time this morning is, is to take some cameo shots. We're not going to study every detail of Nehemiah's uh, character, but seeing him in the different roles that he played as one of God's uh, people captive in a strange land. How did the man conduct himself? How did his character influence his behavior under various circumstances which he faced? Was he consistent or was he compromising? Was he faithful or fickle? Was he stagnant or did he grow in the grace of God? Well, that's what we want to look at. You'll have it in your bulletin outline, Nehemiah's godly character. Our first glimpse of Nehemiah is in the first chapter of his book, in which his brother came from Jerusalem bearing news about the deplorable state of the city. So you know right away he's not living in Jerusalem. He's not in Palestine. He is part of the captivity that was hauled away uh, years before. And the city is in a deplorable state because Nebuchadnezzar had marched his armies into Jerusalem 70 years earlier and had literally leveled the city, leaving not so much as one stone upon another, the scripture says, and all the gates had been burned. They were made out of wood, but they're burned. They're gone. And the temple was completely reduced to rubble. And the citizenry carried off into exile. It's implied in verse 4. But if you want the details, you can read Second Chronicles 36. Nehemiah and his contemporaries were the descendants. They are the descendants now of those exiles. And even now, they're still in exile only they're serving under the Persian kings, not the Babylonian kings, who at this time were allowing Israelites to return to Jerusalem. By the way, these ancient kings and kingdoms had, had this kind of mental attitude. You know, they didn't hold people captive forever. They allowed them to go back to their homelands and establish their farms and their homestead. And so on. So that's what's going on here. But from Hananiah's report, that's the brother of Nehemiah, not much had been done in restoring Jerusalem as a city and as a center of worship for Jehovah. So our first look at Nehemiah is to see him as a man of prayer. He gets this bad report from his brother. How's things in the home, hometown? Ananiah, well, brother, not very good. Well, yeah, but we've had been, exiles have been going back home. Uh, the king has left them go back home. Well, they're not doing anything. What about the walls? The walls of the city are just rubble. What about our worship center, the temple? It's all ruins. Not much is going on. So our first look at Nehemiah is to see him as a man of prayer, not just prayer that is memorized and repeated like a robot, but prayer born out of tears. Verse 4, I sat down and wept. 
He goes on to say that for several days he mourned and fasted. Have you ever prayed weeping? I have. Does this diminish Nehemiah somehow as a man? Well, some would think that it shows weakness in his character because men aren't supposed to cry. I remember before our present uh, Speaker of the House, Speaker Boehner was accused a number of times of, what's with the tears? You know, he would tear up while he was trying to lead uh, Congress. And uh, others would say, he, he's just got to get rid of that, that, those tears. I'm not saying that he's a believer or anything of that nature, but why can't we allow a man to respond in an emotional way to something that is a grief to him or a hurt to them? This was Nehemiah. I want to say that godly men know how to cry under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Things bother us. Usually uh, we're stalwart, but there are times when we are grieved to tears. Now if you listen to Nehemiah's prayer, you will discover, and this is wonderful, no blame shifting on his part, no condemnation of God for the misery that the exiles were now living in, no excusing of his own culpability, though Nehemiah himself belongs to another generation from those who were taken into captivity in the Babylonian time. Instead, instead, after acknowledging the love of God for Israel, verse 5, he goes on to say, here it is, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands the decrees and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Verse 6, verse 7. What a confession. And brethren, the way up with God and his favor is down. David put it this way, and this was in his time of sin as well. He said the sacrifices of God, what he wants, you, what he wants is not animal sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, that you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 17. That's what God's looking for in people, certainly in men as well. He says it again in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You want God to be close to you? then there's this whole responsibility of humility before God. Let me ask, have you ever been crushed in spirit? Brokenhearted because of your sin? Nehemiah was. He certainly was. And he never made a move in his walk before consulting God in prayer. His dependence upon God was demonstrated in his prayer life, and he prayed as he did because he was conscious of his many sins. Men that are cocky and sure of themselves don't pray. Men who see themselves as a notch or two above others are never moved to contrition. And in saying this, I am saying that God is never near to them either. Because that's what the scripture says. You may think you're something special as a husband, a father, a church officer, but God knows you're not. It's not enough to say that there was a time in my past when I came to Christ and I was sorry for my behavior and I repented. I say that's not enough because repentance is to be ongoing. Why is repentance to be ongoing? Because sin is ongoing. That's why. If I could confess today all of my sins and never sin again, that would be one thing. But to confess today and sin in the next breath is the lot of us all. 
We're never solely consumed with righteous thoughts, words, and deeds. We're blackened by our failures and wickedness every day, sometimes almost every hour. Now I'm talking about us that know the Lord. So this should compel us to be men of prayer. And when we pray, we must be brutally honest about our own sin. I love this about Nehemiah. He's not blaming anybody for where he's at. Sometimes we shift blame. We pray like the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Can you imagine a guy praying that way? But he did. I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and doers, evildoers and adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth or a tithe of all that I get to the Lord. Luke 18, verse 11 and 12. That's not a prayer at all. That's a man informing God of how good God has it to have this man on his side. I'm a prize, Lord. You you got a prize in me. I'm not like other guys or even like this tax gatherer sitting here praying alongside of me. What great hypocrisy. And yet, we pray the blame on others all the time and justify ourselves. Well, yeah, but he said, well, if she wouldn't have done that, then I would See, that's what we do. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and guess what? He knew his own sin. I confess, he says, the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. Verse 6 and 7. Now, brethren, that's real prayer. That's real prayer. And by the way, while I'm on the subject of prayer, if you have not come out to Wednesday night prayer service, I would encourage you to do so. There's real praying that goes on in this building on Wednesday night. The men meet separately, the women meet separately, except for one Wednesday a month where we pray together right here, but we meet separately. I can't speak for the women, but I'm pretty sure that they're doing the same thing. But in our men's prayer meeting, we're not patting each other on the back. We're confessing our sin. We're asking God to be merciful to our church, to grow our church, and that we would not be an in, inhibited in any way to that growth, that we would not be an Achan in the camp, if you know what I mean from your, your scripture history. We're praying and confessing our sins. You say, well, that sounds like a downer. No, that's an upper. It's great to hear godly men not Shifting blame, you did this, she said that. If she wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this. There's none of that going on. It's Lord, look at me. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, the Negro spiritual sees. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my brother, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. I love it when God's people say, pray for me. We were talking about testimonies in the adult class this morning. Testimonies so that we usually do that on the first Sunday of the month. But we, that's just not ritual. We say that so that people will hear and say, you know, so-and-so gave that testimony. They're having a rough time in their family. We need to pray for them. That should be the outcome. Secondly, Nehemiah was a man who rose above his slavish fear and seized opportunities for God and utilized them to the fullest. Chapter 2 tells us that in the month Nisan, that's March, April. Now, Jewish calendar is always the beginning of one month to the beginning of, I know they're weird. Uh, the beginning of one month to the middle of the other month, and that's their month. So you're, when you hear about Jewish calendar, it's always going to involve two months. So. Chapter 2 tells us that in the month Nisan, that's March, April, Nehemiah was summoned to bring wine to King Artaxerxes since he was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 1, verse 11. A cupbearer 
This is the days of intrigue, you know. There's poison in the cup. So a cupbearer was a person that brought the beverages to the king. And in the presence of the king, he would drink from that very same cup. And of course, as they're poisoning the cup, guess who's going to drop dead on the floor first? It's going to be Nehemiah, not King Artaxerxes. Very prominent position. Nehemiah had first heard of Jerusalem's plight in the month Kislev, verse 1. That's November, December. So, for four months had passed in which Nehemiah prayed about Jerusalem, and in that time, the Lord only burdened him all the more to do something, anything, to correct the ills of Jerusalem. And the burden, can I say it this way, showed on his sad face and king artaxerxes took notice this king was the stepson of esther after her husband xerxes not artaxerxes but xerxes deposed his wife vashti for snubbing his request to appear before visiting dignitaries now artaxerxes wants to know what is troubling his cupbearer this was the very moment Nehemiah had been praying about for months. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, King Artaxerxes. And now Artaxerxes himself opens the door for Nehemiah's request. Why does your face look sad when you are not ill? Chapter 2, verse 3. This can only be sadness of heart. Wow, what an open door. Nehemiah is praying, God, I'd like to talk to this, this king about something very serious that's on my heart, you burden. And here... The king says, you know, you're looking pretty sad, and I know you're not sick, so it must be that you're sad in heart. Door wide open. Wow. But would Nehemiah walk through? Chapter 2, verse tell, 2 tells us that Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells us, rather, I was very much afraid. Talk about respect for authority. Here it is. This is fear. And it's in a man. Well, how can that be? <laughs> Men are supposed to be fearless. Men are supposed to be able to rise to the challenge, protect their families from harm, be able to walk through fires of danger without flinching. Men are to be strong, courageous, unrelenting. Well, anyone here who thinks that way would have blown it before King Artaxerxes. God may rule in the affairs of men, but Artaxerxes was nonetheless the ruler of the Persian Empire, which stretched at this time from modern-day Greece to the borders of modern-day India and included all of northern Africa and Egypt. This is not some little potentate. You could put a number of United States in that territory. But the door was open by the king himself. Now, would Nehemiah walk through the door that the king opened for him, though he was full of fear? Well, look at verse 4. I prayed to the God of heaven, and, ans and I answered the king. Now we're into the second chapter here. The man <clears throat> knew the truth of how you approach things. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. He knew the truth of Solomon's word. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he pleases. Proverbs 2, verse 1. The king's heart is in the Lord's hands. Nehemiah began by requesting leave to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And having, I'm skipping through here a little bit, having sensed a welcome reception 
to this idea that both Artaxerxes and his queen asked how long Nehemiah would be gone for such a project. Now, see, if you're not cut right off, he makes his request and they say, well, how long is this going to take? So they didn't get, he didn't get cut off. He's thinking, whoa, that's a favorable response. They're not saying no. They're just saying, how long? So that emboldens him a little more. He pulled out all the stops and he went on to request letters of safe conduct for him to take to the governors of the trans-Euphrates region, verse 7. He requested to the king's keepers of the forest, supplying with all the materials that he needed to rebuild the city and his own residence, verse 8. Wow, he's on a roll. And we read, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my Yeah, when you're praying God's will for something, he'll grant the request. Chapter 2, verse 8 and following give the context, and it shows that Artaxerxes even sent army officers and his cavalry to ensure safe passage. This is in the days of robbers and thieves and would-be potentates and all of that kind of stuff. So he escorts Nehemiah and his family and his workers back to Jerusalem. All because of his burden. Have you ever been burdened about something? I mean, God lays some great need of his people or his kingdom on your heart. And you spend days in prayer about it, perhaps weeks. And it won't go away. And then suddenly, suddenly the opportunity presents itself to do something about it, to walk through the door. But you're afraid, like Nehemiah. You've been waiting for this moment, but when the moment arises, you have second thoughts, and you're not sure that you want to follow through. After all, your reputation's on the line, right? If you do not succeed, your testimony for Christ is being put on the carpet, and what if you fail? And then Satan himself forces himself into the picture, and he fills your mind with all sorts of wicked thoughts. You can't say that. If you say that, your boss will fire you. You can't commit to that. If you do that, it will cut into your business and your profit margin will take a severe slice. Are you really sure God wants you to do this or is this just something you want to do? All those kind of thoughts bombard our minds. And these seductions of the evil one have destroyed a lot of noble intentions in God's people. They were halted dead in their tracks by inordinate fears. Fears trumped up and blown out of due proportion. Fear that denies faith and ultimately denies the power of God to rule in the affairs of men. Well, godly Nehemiah's fear was reasonable, but it wasn't crippling. He was praying with the knowledge that God would prosper his endeavor no matter what the obstacles, if God were in the request. And by faith he stepped through the door of opportunity. Let me ask us, do we buy up our God-given opportunities to serve God? Or in fear, do we abdicate to the wicked counsel of our friends, the philosophy of the world, the well-meaning but misguided advice from Christians who themselves are more governed by fear than they are by faith. You've got to evaluate things. Where do we discover the will of God? Well, for our day and age, it's in the book. God has revealed to us his commands and what we're to do, how we're to live on every area of life. Raising children, the temptations of the world, wealth, and advocating, and work, ethic, all of those. It doesn't matter. Whatever the subject, it's in the book. And faith will grab hold of those truths in the book and walk through the door. Thirdly, Nehemiah formulated a plan for the work. He executed it, and he refused to compromise with the enemies of Israel. Anytime you're going to try to do something for God, you can be sure there's going to be people there that oppose you. 
Chapter 2, verse 11 and following explain how Nehemiah, with a handful of men, inspected the city at night to assess the damage done and how to best repair it. Good move. Then he did this in secret without telling anyone, not even his own officials. And when all was evaluated, he called the people together and he said, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Verse 17. He told them about the gracious hand of God upon him and what the king had said to him. Verse 18. We've been out in the night. We took a good look at the wall. People, we can do this. We can do this. And the response of the people was, verse 18, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. I love that. I love the way that's phrased. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. Well, it wasn't very long before the governors of the region heard what was going on. There's three of them, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab. And these began to mock Nehemiah's efforts and to accuse him of rebelling against the king. It was a scare tactic to get him to back off the project. How could he be rebelling against the king when Artaxerxes sent him there, escorted by his own troops, to guarantee safe passage? How could he be rebelling against the king when all those that worked the forest were told to cut the trees and so forth, bring whatever was necessary to do the rebuilding project? So the, these are liars here. These are governors of various uh, counties or regions in the empire and they're trying to scare Nehemiah to back off. Well, instead, Nehemiah told them to their face, and I, I really love this, chapter 2, verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. Wow. Talk about laying your cards on the table. Instead of being intimidated by their threats, Nehemiah threw the gauntlet down and told them in no uncertain terms to back off because they had no right to Jerusalem, not now, not historically. And any claim they tried to make would be bogus. Now these are the governors of the regions around Jerusalem. So they got armies, they got weaponry, they have all of that. And he's telling them, bug out. Men of godly character must have a sense of their destiny and the conviction that their priorities are right and must not be compromised if they are involved in a work for God. Sad to say, sometimes churches look to the world to fund their programs or to come up with programs. But Nehemiah undertook the attitude that such pack money comes with strings attached to it. In short, he was saying to those governors, you are not invited to the work party. We don't need you, we don't want you. And just for good measure, in case they thought that they would somehow keep Nehemiah from completing his plan, Nehemiah asserted, the God of heaven will give us success. See the man of faith and see his faith coming through? Where is this confident faith in God's people today? Where's the conviction that once a reasonable plan is made and the work approved, that there will be no compromise? This is how God's work gets done. It's the only way it gets done. Those who keep sitting on the fence, reevaluating, uh, reassessing, rearranging the list of priorities. They never get out of the planning stage. James tells us that that man who makes requests of God while being full of doubts, that man should, I'm reading scripture, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man and he's unstable in all his ways. James 1 verse 8. That isn't what God wants of us as men. Well, you know, I think, well, maybe we ought to think, well, I'd like to. 
You can do that till you die and never get anything done. Faith pleases God. Uncompromising faith. Faith which rests upon the promises and commands of the Bible, realizing full well that God loves his people to hold him to his word. Let me say that again. God loves his people to hold him to his word. It's evident that we believe him and we believe his word. So are we that kind of man? Well, Nehemiah was. And so he was not easily frightened by the scare tactics from these pagan governors. What is it you're doing over there in Jerusalem? And if you read the text, one of them even says, what kind of wall is that? Well, even if a fox walks over the wall, it'll crumble down under its weight. They did. They said that. It's in the text. So this is really a thumbs down. You guys don't even know how to build a wall. Like they were some bumpkins. Never had any skills whatsoever in terms of construction. So he was resolute. He stuck to the plan. And he said, you know, guys, we can do this. And the people said, okay, let's do this. And they began the good work. Well, now egg is on the face of the governors because <laughs> the wall's going up and getting done. So that's the last trait. As one final character trait, consider the fact that Nehemiah was wise and discerning. As already pointed out, he had enemies on this project. These governors who had ruled over Jerusalem before him had now, by the king's own edict, been replaced by Nehemiah. How would you like that? They lost their job. Nehemiah became the governing, the governor. They had lost the tariff, too, the, uh, that was levied on the inhabitants. They had lost land, so they had lost people. They had lost money. They're not going to take this sitting down. Xerxes way back there in Susa, the capital. What we do over here in Jerusalem, that's us. We'll get our heads together. <laughs> Consequently, they began to mobilize their armies and to prepare to march on Jerusalem. And so we are told by Nehemiah, but we, <laughs> we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Chapter 4, verse 9. You know, well, wait a minute. This is an army coming against little us. I guess we'll have to stop. No, he says, no, we'll post a guard. Night and day. Oh, he did more. Half the workers were assigned weapons and armament to stand guard, and the rest of the workers worked with one hand on a trowel and the other holding a weapon. Now, just think of that. One hand on a trowel... We have uh, Dale in our church is a pretty good masonry worker. One hand on, and he has a gun, so I'm telling on Dale. Goes bang, 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 and that, you know, that's more than, than a spear or a sword. So he's got a sword in one hand and a, a mason's trowel in the other hand. How are you going to get any work done like that? Well, it slowed the work considerably, as you might imagine. You're cutting your work time. Yet even with all this, the wall was completed in 52 days. Chapter 6, verse 15. We aren't talking about little cement blocks that weigh maybe 20 pounds. We are talking boulders here. We are talking walls that are feet thick, not inches thick. Painful, backstabbing work. 52 days. In a last-ditch effort, before the breaches of the wall were completely closed by rehanging the gates, you got to get the holes where the gates were. you got to get them closed. So that's coming up. Sanballat and Gershom sent a message to Nehemiah saying, here it is, Come, let us meet together in one of the village on the plains of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, and so I sent messengers why should the work stop while I leave to go down to you? Chapter 6, verse 3 and following. And the context tells us they sent this message out to Nehemiah four times. Oh, come on, why, why can't we just sit down and talk about this a little bit? 
Later, in the same chapter, a prophet tried to convince Nehemiah to run into the temple and lock the doors behind him, saying, Men are coming to kill you by night. Chapter 6, verse 30. Nehemiah answered, Should a man like me run away? <laughs> I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Oh, he's, he's, he's a hired prophet. You say what, I say what I tell you to say and nothing more. And we'll pay you X number of some dollars. Whatever. Now in both these cases, Nehemiah showed great discernment. He knew that if he had gone down to the plains of Ono, it would be the end of him. It would be his place of death. These governors were not honorable men. He knew that no assassins were coming into Jerusalem to kill him by night. How did he know these things? Did he have a crystal ball? Was he psychic? None of this. He was a man of godly character who understood something of the deceit of men and the wicked things they will try to thwart the will of God. Got to know your enemy. How do we as men get discernment? Hebrews 5, verse 12 and following, admonish the brethren, saying, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's saying discernment man comes from knowing the word of God and not simply knowing the milk of the word as though you were to remain a baby little baby Christian all your life, but you're to know the meat of the word of God. In order for that to happen, you need to be students of God's word and practicers of it. And this is not something your pastor can do for you. The writer says, the mature train them, I'm reading scripture, train themselves by constant use. And where there is not a continual use of the Bible and applying the principles to one's life, even what is known is going to be lost, and such need to be retaught the Bible basics all over again. That's deplorable. And that's sad to say, that's where the bulk of the church is in America today. The gospel has gone right down the dumper. Churches are all into entertainment. They're into 15-minute little ditties as far as a sermon is concerned. People come out to hear something good and uplifting and refreshing. They don't want to hear about their sin, which would make them uplifted. Such people will be blown about by every doctrine that comes down the pike. They will believe every preacher. They will buy into every program calling itself Christian. And they will be sucked into the dirty tricks of the evil one. Nehemiah was wise and discerning. Tremendous governor for the time. So then these four things demonstrate his godly character. His prayer life. It wasn't just once a week or once a day. It's continual. He rose above his slavish fears and acted by faith on the opportunities God opened for him. That doesn't mean he wasn't scared. It just means he didn't allow a fear to, to cripple him. Number three, he refused to compromise what he knew to be the plan and the will of God. Number four, he was wise in the ways of the world and could discern between truth and lies. I'm sure God enabled him in that. Now, from where does true wisdom come? Knowledge, well, knowledge can be obtained from book reading. I have in my library a book on handyman repairs around the home. I bought it years ago from Reader's Digest. It's about that thick. Any subject, 
I had to repair a hot water heater one time. Look up hot water heater, step by step, there it is. I got the knowledge, I had the tools, was able to repair it, save myself probably hundreds of dollars. Want to build a shed? There it is, how to frame it out. It's all there. You can get knowledge by reading books or going to a class. But wisdom is the capability to use knowledge in a righteous, helpful, and gracious way. It's to be able to put what you know into practice to bring about good. And the Bible puts it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9 verse 10. You start with God, what he, is, what he knows and what he reveals to us in the word of God and we're blessed. King David, who was called the friend of God, he didn't name himself that, God named him that. Called the friend of God, told his son Solomon, Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. Well, that's a good thing to tell his son. Jesus, the king, greater than David, greater than Solomon, taught the people of his day. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Matthew 11, verse 27. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know God, you... You need to come to me, and I will reveal him to you. How many sinners find God? Philip said, one of the disciples, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you? Such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to me, show us the Father? John 14, verse 8 and 9. What Jesus is saying that if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. I'm his son and we're identical in terms of character and power and gifts and all of those various things. What do you think, Philip, that you're going to find something different in the Father than you have seen and heard and found in me verse 21 whoever has my commands and obeys them he is the one who loves me he who loves me will be loved by my father I too will love him and show myself to him John 14 verse 21 you want knowledge you want wisdom you have to know Christ the apostle John's testimony we know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5, verse 20. And Paul put it this way, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom. From God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. True wisdom, true discernment begins with knowing Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you'll know who God is. If you study Jesus, you'll be studying, <clears throat> excuse me, studying who God is. For God is his Father. What a man Nehemiah was. He puts out a challenge to all of us men here today to develop some of these traits, certainly that characterize Nehemiah, his prayer life, his discernment, his fearlessness, 
and his discernment to know right from wrong and who was on God's side and who wasn't. If you're outside of Christ today, come to Christ and you'll be wise. You won't just have knowledge, you'll have wisdom. And that's what we need in our world. Is it frightening to live in our world today? Not if you know Christ. Say, well, I'm still scared about the terrorists. Yeah. Nehemiah was fearful to speak to the king, but he did it anyway because God was on his side. That's the way Christians pass through life. We aren't saying we're not fearful. We're saying God will get us through. He will sustain us. Our Lord, we pray that you will do that very thing for us as men, and that you will do that very thing for all of us this day. If we're without Christ, we have cut off the very source of wisdom, the very courage that defeats fear, the very assurance of life eternal. We have cut off a lot of things. So I pray today that you will grant us the faith to believe, repentance to turn away from our sin. Draw us effectually unto yourself this day. Make us men of purpose and men of courage. And I thank you, Lord, for Nehemiah. Thank you for the short biography that we have of him in the book of books. He is an inspiration to us because he was a sinner man. And yet this sinner man found grace and goodness in God. and All the empowerment that comes with knowing God as Savior. I pray that you will help us to see that and to believe it. We thank you, Lord, for yourself. Close by asking that you'll be with the Bartolucci family, going through fear and sorrow now with the loss of their teenage daughter. May you strengthen them. Be with Tony as he continues in his pastoral work. Help his church to rally around him in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 387. I remind the men when you leave today out on this, there's a little uh, tray. And on the tray is um, a bowl of, we thought men, men like to eat, right? So there's.